life is. Uh, my little granddaughter, when saying goodbye to me the other night, we were here at church and we we're about to part, and she said, Grandpa, I sure hope you don't die in your sleep tonight. <laughs> That brought me back to earth real quick. <laughs> I wondered if she had some premonition that I wasn't yet aware of. Uh, we're not here for very long at best. So let's make best use of it, huh? Well, we're in a series A to Z, and we're in the D's, and last week was death, and this week is death, and the two of them go together. It's pretty hard to let the Holy Spirit flow through us if we're head over heels in debt. Now, I picked up a paragraph. I've got to read word for word because I'm sure if I tried to give it to you by memory, I'd miss a word, and it's so good the way it's written. Here's what it says. The modern American is a person who drives a bank-financed car over a bond-financed highway on credit card gas to open a charge account at a department store so he can fill his savings and loan financed home with installment purchased furniture. <laughs> wow. Is that a description or not? I know some of you are going to be kind of squirmy this morning, so... Just relax and know we're among friends. But if the shoe fits, I hope you'll wear it. Because that's why I preach. That we might be brought face to face with reality. And do what God wants us to do about these important issues of life. Now here is something I have discovered most Americans live on more than they make. You can never serve God that way. You never will, you never can. We're always living till the next paycheck so we can pay for things we've already ob obligated ourselves to. Most Americans live on more than they make. And that has to change, especially within the church. The American economy is riding on a growing mountain of debt that is now into the trillions of dollars. Personal debt in the United States is increasing at over $1,000 a second personal debt, over a thousand dollars a second on the increase. How does this affect us personally? It definitely does. Over a quarter of a million Americans filed bankruptcy this year. And it's climbing every day. The worst part of it is that over 60% of the divorces in America are financially induced. By that I mean pressure 
financially. Debt, undue pressure within the home and the marriage, not handling finance well. It's a fact. It was not that way when I started into the ministry. Rarely would you talk to people divorcing because of financial reasons. Today it's rare not to have finance at the heart of the problem. Something has to be done. Bill Earle said, if your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. Indeed. A credit manager said to the person making application for a loan, do you have any money in the bank? The applicant said, certainly. The credit manager said, how much? The applicant said, I don't know. I haven't shaken it lately. <laughs> and that, too, is too much a picture of the American family and the American worker. Proverbs 22.7 says, never lend money to a friend. It's dangerous. It could damage his memory. You say, I never read that. Well, look again. That's what it says. 22-7, never loan money to a friend. It's dangerous. It could damage his memory. You see, all that's bound up in the words, the borrower is servant to the lender. And what did Paul open this section of Scripture with? Oh, no man, anything but to love one another fervently. The biggest lie of all was seen in a loan company window. We are hit with it every day. Here was the sign in the window. Now you can borrow enough money to get completely out of debt. <laughs> that is tremendous. You hear it on the radio. Get out of debt. Refinance. That's a joke. But that's what we're fed, and it's the biggest lie of history. So we take the Bible in hand today because the Bible can speak to us even on such practical things as debt. And there are two things that I have learned that I want to share with you today about this matter of debt. And you will never forget them, I hope. Number one, we will look at the now philosophy, the now generation philosophy, and then, secondly, we will look at the Jesus generation philosophy. Because you're in either one or the other. So we'll look at both of them. The now generation philosophy and the Jesus generation philosophy. And you're going to have to decide which one you're going to plug into. The American mind goes like this. I have a right to what I want when I want it. That is the now generation philosophy. 
I have a right to what I want when I want it. And I would add whether I can afford it or not. Now in the 11th verse of Romans 13, Paul said something unique, which I think helps understand the whole section here. He said to these believers, it is high time to awake out of sleep. Now you've got to apply this to everything he wrote. It wasn't a Sunday morning church service when he said, awake out of sleep, although it could be applied that way to some. He looked over his day and over the believers who he was called to minister to, and he said there's something tragic happening here. They're buying in to the present philosophies. If you will read further, you will see how he highlights that. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness. What is all of that? It's getting what we want now, whether it's right or whether we can afford it or not. That's the present philosophy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That is all here in this passage of Scripture which begins by saying, Oh, no man, anything. It's a note of urgency to the church. Awake, open your eyes, discover where you are. He said to the Corinthian believers, don't let this generation suck you into its mold. Don't be framed by what Rome does. Now, the first part of this chapter talks about government, talks about obeying rulers, talks about paying taxes and customs. He said, pay taxes. Give custom to whom custom is due. It's proper. These folk who write books on how to get out of paying taxes, it's non-scriptural. Totally against the revelation of the Bible. We're to pay for our use of the highway. We're to do what each is required to do. And without complaint, and we are to pray for those whom God has put into authority because Paul said they are indeed placed there by God. Whether we agree with them all the time or not, God has placed them there and we are to do what we are supposed to do. So just notice that that is from Romans 13, an obligation for Christians to pay taxes. And then he turns from that scene to the private scene financial private concern. Oh, no man anything. Now, I as a pastor must say to you that debt is not a sin. I'm not standing here suggesting to you that debt is not a sin or that debt is a sin. It's not a sin. I believe what Paul is saying here is what I'm going to be trying to explain throughout this message. 
It does two basic things to us. Basically, that does this. Number one, it presumes upon the future. Debt presumes that you have assets to repay the debt. Paul points out that not to repay is not an option to the believer in Christ. And that needs to be said. In this day of bankruptcy, not to repay is not an option with the believer. If it takes till the day you die, you have an option. You do not have an option to get out of it. You must repay. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 21, the psalmist said, The wicked borrows and does not repay. That we would expect, I guess. And we see that around in business. Wicked people who sign up for things with a grin on their face, never intending to repay. And so we have people having to pay great amounts of money to take the car back, to go get the furniture, to reclaim the house because the wicked do not intend to repay. But the righteous, the psalmist said, shows mercy and gives. And then in verse 23 of Psalm 37, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and God delights in his way. This has something to do with our financial obligations. If the steps of people are ordered by the Lord, God says, I delight in their way, and I'm going to keep them from the disasters that come to the wicked. If our heart is right, if we're prayed up and we make every decision based upon the peace of God ruling in our hearts, the righteous will show mercy and give while the wicked borrows and does not repay. So the first thing debt does is presumes upon the future. It says you're going to get a state check. And you don't know if you are or not. <laughs> the second thing is that debt denies God an opportunity to work. And this to me is the most serious of all. Last Sunday night, a fabulous message on prayer. If you missed it, you missed a life-changing message. That's why you should never miss on give us this day our daily bread. Our speaker said, I've never had to pray for bread a day in my life. I've never gone hungry. So what does this mean? Give us our daily bread. He said, basically what it means is that God should be considered as the provider in everything that life affords. God is the one we should look to I never thought about it in that exact light, and it was a blessing. We've got it all twisted up. The lender of the money takes the place of God in American life. The lender is going to meet my needs. The lender is going to take care of my wants. Where does God fit in? See, that's the problem with that. It denies God an opportunity to work. Debt basically mortgages the future. Getting into it is easy. Getting out is another matter. 
Not only do you have to pay the amount borrowed, but you have to pay the interest amount also on the amount borrowed. Instead of the magic of compounding working for you, it works against you. Let me explain that by using as an example a home mortgage of $50,000. If you borrow $50,000 for a home mortgage at 10% interest and it's a 30-year loan, you're going to pay $150,000 in those 30 years for that mortgage. Who gets the other 100000 Not you. We've lived on an inflation economy that has come to an end. And I doubt we're ever going to see it like we have in the past again. And some of you have got to make some adjustments in your life without doubt if you're going to survive. Compounding should work for you. You should be putting some of your funds in places where compounding is going to bless you. I started when I was 25 years old making a pittance for a salary every month, putting something away, and today what that is worth to take care of my wife should something happen to me is astounding because I've used compounding properly rather than to give it to somebody else. That's the will of God. That is the way Christians ought to be functioning. Paying the 150000 is hard, difficult. Whatever amount you put in there, it's hard, and that's what denies God an opportunity to bless you. And when the missionary comes, denies you an opportunity to bless the missionary and the work of God around the world, I don't have anything to give, is what many Christians have to say. And it should not be. The worst kind of debt is the credit card you've got in your pocket. If you've been around here very long, you know that I recommend a religious ceremony as soon after church as possible. And that is with the scissors in your home and whatever number of credit cards you've got, you say in the name of Jesus, clip, clip, clip. And you do not pray for healing. When the plastic is put into your hands, it is a proven fact that you will obligate yourself for as much as 34% more than you would if you had cash. And of course, they know that out there. There are two rules to follow. One, a guaranteed way to repay the debt you must have. If you're going to be Christian, You've got to have a guaranteed way to repay the debt. Not hope so, not if everything, oh, I'm so tired of hearing if everything works out. God isn't in that. A guaranteed way to repay the debt. I work with ministers a lot. I chair committees who, who uh, investigate Ministers who apply for credentials, do they meet the requirements and 
I look at their applications and there's a section in there, how much debt do you have? And they're required to list it and I've almost fainted looking at some of those sheets with supposed ministers who think they can stand and minister the word of God when they're head over heels in debt to people in the world. Can never be. You can never be spiritually free when you're financially obligated. Doesn't work. Mark it down. Minister, layman, woman, man, youth, senior. It's true. Your spiritual life can never rise any higher than your ability to be free. So you've got to be sure you can guarantee the repayment of the debt. The second thing is the item borrowed for should have an economic return greater than the interest cost for borrowing the money. What does that mean, Pastor? It means you guard against depreciating items. So much of our debt is something that now is worth nothing, and you're still paying on it. You're still obligated to it. And you're so bound up that marriage hurts that family relationships are destroyed, that all of this has pressure connected to it because you've done something that has now no value to it at all. You've got to, as a Christian, guard against that with all the passion of your being. You see, that's the now generation philosophy. You just obligate everything you can and hopefully everything will turn out well. Friends, you cannot do that and serve God effectively. Now, the Jesus generation philosophy, I'd rather talk about that. Luke 16, 11 is the Jesus generation philosophy. You would do well to read that entire chapter sometime. I'm not going to take time to do it this morning, but read the whole passage. And in the 11th verse, Jesus said, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? It simply means if you have not been faithful in money matters, how do you think you're going to be trusted with spiritual matters, things that last for eternity? Moffat has a wonderful translation of that 11th verse. He put it this way. So if you are not faithful with dishonest mammon, how can you ever be trusted with true riches? It's a good question, Jesus asks. So it introduces us to his philosophy. Now I'm about to say something that can change your life forever if you will hear it and agree with it. Three words. Money is myself. Money is myself. What do you mean? Well, let's say that I'm a mechanic and I earn $500 a week just for a round figure. And at the end of the week, I put that $500 in my pocket. What is that $500? It is a week's worth of myself. That's what it is. If I itch for that which I do not earn, it is the beginning of spiritual peril. That's what Jesus is saying. If you can't handle the mammon that you have, how are you going to handle spiritual things? If you can't handle the $500 
which is in essence your life for that week, then how are you going to handle spiritual gifts? Something we must think through and answer before God. You see, I lose sight of the spiritual content of money if I don't use the Jesus philosophy. A seed investment is needed by many people right now just to get out of debt. Because the Jesus philosophy is give and it will be given. And our philosophy has been give to me and maybe I'll have an opportunity to pay you back. See, it's all messed up. Jesus said, give and it shall be given. So a seed investment many of you have never made. Some of you have never given a thousand dollar check to the work of God. If you want to get out of debt, write one out. Boy, he's really flipped now. <laughs> I'm serious as I could be. Really, I am. I never figured out finance till I figured out how to give. Till I understood Jesus' philosophy of giving so that you could receive. Some of you fight tithing. You just, ah, every time I say the word, you just, ah, cringe you shrivel up and you feel like one of those worms out of my driveway in the hot sun you <laughs> why is that you don't understand Jesus philosophy you give so that you may receive you see the basic sin of man is greed that's the basic sin of man. The last commandment is, thou shalt not what? Covet. What's covetousness? It's greediness. It's wanting things you can't afford. It's desiring things that belong to somebody else, be it their house or their wife. And God is so against that thing that is so much a part of our lives these days. There are so many examples in Scripture, like Achan in Joshua chapter 7. We studied it on Wednesday nights recently. Achan committed a horrible sin, and it was the sin of greed, of covetousness. They were all told, when you get Jericho, don't take a thing out. I'm going to destroy Jericho. It will be a miracle by my hand, but don't take anything. And Achan saw Babylonish garments. He saw gold and he saw silver. And he took it and buried it in the floor of his tent. And when the people of God went out to battle Ai, their next fight, they were horribly defeated because God said to Joshua, you've got sin in the camp. Find the sin and then you go back and fight and you'll win. What was the sin? Achan's sin. One man's sin. He took what he should not have taken. He coveted what he should not have desired. And Achan and all of his relatives were stoned to death. And if you want to know the bottom line, look at verse 21 of Joshua 7. Achan himself said, I coveted them. Look at Gehazi in 2 Kings 5. Naaman was a leper, a leader, but a leper. And Elisha was the prophet of God. And Elisha told Naaman, 
to dip seven times in the River Jordan. And he argued and he fussed, but he was a leper and he was willing to try anything. And he dipped once and he was still a leper. He dipped twice and up to seven times. When he came up after the seventh time, his flesh was like... flesh. He had been healed of his leprosy. And Naaman was so excited, he said to Elisha, let me give you a gift. And Elisha said, no way. I don't want your gift. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, heard Naaman say, let me give you a gift. Ah. And he went after Naaman later, and he said to Naaman, my master, Elisha, wants the gift now. And Naaman was thrilled and gave to Gehazi the gift. But God spoke to Elisha and said, you've got a worm in your midst. The sin was revealed, and I'll tell you one of the saddest words in the Bible is 2 Kings 5.15. The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever because of greed. Now, I've wondered many times why there are certain families that never seem to rise above the level of poverty, the level of need. They seem generation after generation until I read that scripture. Greed, the leprosy of Naaman will cling to you and to your generations forever, but it can be broken by somebody who has the good sense to start doing it God's way and stop coveting and stop having so much greed. And why not now? Why not now? That syndrome can be broken by the Jesus philosophy. And then there's Ananias in Acts 5. He became a liar because of greed. He lied to Peter. Did you sell the property for so much? Yes, that's what I sold it for. <laughs> and he was stricken dead, and his wife was stricken right alongside of him. They carried them out feet first, right out of the church house because of greed. And what about Judas? Do I need to even mention him? He became a traitor because of greed. He wanted some silver. And what did he get for it? Death. So you see, it's a real principle to pay attention to. And here's the peril of the Jesus generation. When there's so much knowledge about Jesus and his ways, the peril was pointed out by John Wesley. John Wesley said this. Let me quote him. When a man becomes a true Christian, he becomes industrious, trustworthy, and prosperous. Now, if that man, whilst he gets all he can and saves all he can, does not give all he can, I have more hope of Judas Iscariot than of that man. End of quote. What was he saying? He was saying Christianity automatically produces certain amounts of prosperity. I said that to a reporter one day, and they looked at me like I had lost my mind. I said, I can prove it to you. When you live industriously, you obey the commands of the Word of God. If you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. When you become a Christian, you want to work. When you become a Christian, you want to be righteous. You want to do it trustworthily. God automatically brings blessing your way. You can't stop it. It just happens. 
I never gave my life to Christ with the idea of prospering, but I can't stop prospering. Everything I seem to do prospers. I don't figure that out. I just like to let it happen because it's my father that's behind it, not me. I'm not smart enough. I don't know how to run a multi-million dollar organization. I never went to a course on how to handle a corporation like this that handles millions of dollars a year and thousands of people and scores of ministries. I never learned that in a book other than this book. God just blesses it. And you can't stop him part of his way. But you try it yourself. You're going to do it. You're going to cover it. You're going to move ahead on your You're doomed to failure. You're doomed to loss. But if you do it his way, you're doomed to success. Now, listen to what John Wesley said to his Methodist friends. Some of you Methodists are twice as rich as you were before you were Methodists. Some of you are fourfold as rich. Some of you are tenfold as rich. Now, if whilst you get all you can and save all you can, you do not give all you can, then you are tenfold more the child of hell than you were before. I didn't say that. That's John Wesley. Pretty renowned theologian. What was he saying? Seek first the kingdom. Just what Jesus said. That's the Jesus philosophy. Is the church financed by the rich? Never. Never has been, I don't think ever will be. This church isn't financed by the rich, no. It's financed by the hardworking labor, the widow, the single mother who faithfully obey the word of God. I don't understand why Jesus had to say it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I just know it's that way. Because as we prosper, sometimes we don't understand and remember where the blessing came from. And I'll have to leave that with him. But thank God for the faithful who say, I heard Christ call, come follow. That was all. My gold grew dim. My soul went after him. I rose and followed. That was all. Who would not follow if he heard that call? That should be the heart of every one of us, no matter what strata we are on. God is the one who brings the prosperity, whatever amount. Now, I've got to close with the answer for today. You've got to go out of here with some answers. The Jesus generation answer, stop spending more than you make. Now! Did you hear up there in the balcony? <laughs> now! Today! Stop spending more than you make. That's so simple. I believe my grandchildren could understand that. Secondly, 
Pay the interest on the debt. Don't you dare get behind on the interest of the debt. At least do that. Thirdly, pay the debt. Oh, isn't this profound? My. Don't spend more than you make. Pay the interest and then pay the debt. Get rid of it and do it before you start anything else. But how will I live? Easier than before. <laughs> and fourthly, and this is all, be content with what you have. That's Bible. Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever, and you have to learn it. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. In other words, to get along without, and I know how to abound. I know how to have plenty. In 1 Timothy 6.8, Paul said to Timothy, in having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And in verse 6, Paul said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Hebrews 13, 5, Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, the Lord said, I'm going to take care of you, so be content with what you have. Don't be covetous. I could not believe it when my mother told me that my father and her lived in a tent when they were first married. I said, Mom, you got to be kidding. I, are you talking about a real tent? She said, yeah. I said, were you happy? Absolutely. Be content in a tent. If that's all you can afford. There's some nice tents these days. <laughs> I read something in an old magazine, Charisma 1981, just was fascinating. It was about a company that decided to open a new factory in an underdeveloped Latin American country because labor was cheap and plentiful. And they built it and they opened it with a full complement of workers, and it went fabulously until the first paychecks were issued, and after they issued the first paycheck, not one worker came to work the next day. They went out to investigate, and this was their response. I quote, we are satisfied. We have already earned all the money we need to live on. They never thought about that more than they'd ever had before, and it was plenty. So why go back to work? <laughs> now these brilliant, brilliant, brilliant CEOs have to come up with a plan to get them back to work. You know what they did? They finally, after one month of having that factory closed because nobody would come to work, they figured it out. They distributed through the whole area Sears catalogs fact. I'm not kidding you. They passed out Sears catalogs, and in reading the Sears catalog, they saw all kinds of things they needed, and they went back to work. 
you pay me to find out things like that. So I can tell you. <laughs> now that article closed with four axioms. These are priceless. I just love these. Number one, the more shopping we do, the more we spend. Where are you going? To? I'm just going shopping. What are you going shopping? Well, I'm just going to go shopping. Well, why don't you go praying or go witnessing or go serving and make a pie, take it to somebody in need? Why do we? I'm just going to go shopping. You see, the more shopping we do, the more we spend. <laughs> Secondly, the more we watch television, the more we spend because it's filled with advertising. I love to tape things because I don't have to watch the advertising. Really, I'm serious. I just zoom through them. It doesn't take near as long to watch whatever it is that's important, and that's very little. But you don't have to watch any of that nonsense. Thirdly, the more time we spend looking through catalogs, the more we spend. I got home last night from prayer meeting, sat down in my nice chair, tired. And there by the side of the chair was this thick book, and I picked it up, and it was a catalog. And I said to my dear wife, what's this? Well, she said, it just came, and I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. I said, well, what do you want to look at it for? In just about that tone of voice. Now, if I get those things in the mail, they go in that little green thing that says paper. Right away, I mean, just, I hardly even carry them in the house. If I see them, just right there, there for the collector on garbage day. But there are certain ones among us who <laughs> love to look through those catalogs. Lord, save them from it. Then there's a fourth thing this article said. The more we read magazines and newspaper advertisements, the more we spend. Oh, there are advertising companies that get a lot of money just to get you to get into debt. So Jesus, centuries ago, taught us how to get away from it. Bottom line, get free from debt. My wife and I were married in 1953. After two years of Bible college, I had two more years to go, and I was expecting to get right back in in the fall. We were married in June. We got an apartment, and I got a job, supposedly for the summer, as did my wife, hopefully permanently while I'm studying. And as the summer progressed, I recognized something as a young married man. I'd never thought about it. it was debt. I owed a little on my school bill. I owed on an automobile. And in the time of new marriage, I didn't want the pressure of debt. I said, honey, we're not going to go back to school this fall. We're going to work. We've got good jobs. We'll work through Christmas. Then I'll go back. I'll miss a semester. I'll finish a semester late, but we're going to be out of debt. God blessed us. I became... Frederick and Nelson's best men's shoe salesman. I sold more shoes and slippers 
at Christmas and leaving, I got big check. Me pay bill. <laughs> me very happy. <laughs> me go back school happy. <laughs> me brilliant? No. Me like freedom. Me like follow Jesus. Hallelujah. You like follow Jesus? You may have to change. But it is good, good, good to change. If you get freedom, hallelujah. My wife will ask me, why did you do that? And I'll say, I don't know. <laughs> what I do under the anointing, I'm not responsible for. <laughs> this has been a unique message. If you're new here, you probably wonder, boy, those, do they put up with that every week? No, this is quite, quite different. But it's something the pastor has to address because there are scores and scores of people in this church who are under bondage that need to be free. And God wants you to be free. And some of you are approaching marriage and you're looking at the future and you say, boy, I've got to get this. Nah, ah, ah, ah. Wait, slow down. We're going to adopt the Jesus philosophy, Amen. not the now generation philosophy. Totally opposed. Two different poles. Make a good choice. Make a good choice. Well, let's pray. Please don't leave now until we're through and hold steady. So we give ourselves anew to the will of God and the plan of God's word. Heavenly Father, we do have a good time in church. We must admit, it's fun to come. And in our good time, we have our, our toes stepped on occasionally. We, we are convicted, and it's good, and we thank you because you don't want us to go recklessly along and mess up. You want us to be reminded of the eternal truths that make life meaningful and eternity so wonderful. So move over this audience, Lord. Whatever of this message they need and you can bless, I pray that you will bless it to their hearts, to their lives, to their economy, to their well-being. And for those who need Jesus Christ in their life, they've never asked Christ to be their partner. May they do that today as well, in Jesus' name. While our heads are bowed, let me ask if there are those of you here, as there were in the first service, who need to make Jesus your partner. You've never asked him to come into your life. You're not ready for heaven. You're not ready to live as 
He taught because you've never asked him to be your savior and friend, partner. I'd love to pray for you today. And that's the first decision we need to make. Lord, I want you to be my partner. Would you raise your hand boldly and say, Pastor Cole, would you pray for me? I do need Christ. I'm not afraid to admit it. I raise my hand and ask for your prayers that Jesus Christ might come into my heart today and he might become the Savior and the friend that he said he would be. Would you lift your hand up no matter where you are, no matter first time or many times, you know that you need Jesus. Thank you. Right there on the aisle, thank you so much. I see your hand. You may put it down. Are there others? And up in the balcony, sir, I saw your hand there in the front row. Others, lift them up. I want Christ in my heart. I need Jesus most of all. Thank you over here, ma'am. God bless you. He loves you. He loves you so much. Another back over here on the, yes, ma'am, thank you, on the left. God bless you. Are there others before we close? Let's, yes, up there in the balcony, I see some hands. God bless you up there. He loves you so much. Yes, thank you over here, buddy. God bless you. I see your hand. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Yes, back there on my left. Thank you. Two back there. Another one over here, young man. God bless you. Appreciate that. God bless you. God bless you. Well, how many of you would say, Pastor, what a service. I feel like I need to make some adjustments. I know God is speaking to me. I appreciate the word you've shared. And with God's help, I'm going to do a few things that may be very hard, but I'm going to do it with God's help. Could I pray for you? Would you slip up your hand and say, Pastor, you've spoken to my heart by the word of God. Thank you all over the building. Hands are going up. And I will be faithful to pray for you. Lord Jesus, so hard it is to get out of the flesh and do things in the spirit, to do them by faith, because you said certain things. Help these who have raised their hands to live by faith and not by sight, to be able to make application wherever possible, to see things improve and become such a blessing that they can't even conceive of what that blessing will be. Thank you for honoring your word in them. And then for these who raise their hands saying, I need a partner and I receive Christ today. Come into their hearts. Forgive them of their sins and be their savior today and ever, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together all over the building. I want to ask those of you who raised your hand in the first group, you're receiving Christ I want you to step down here to the front. We have material we want to give you, and we want to pray with you and ask Jesus Christ to be your friend. Everyone he called, he called publicly, said, come, follow me. I want you to step out from where you are. You raised your hand. Now come down. Let us help you this one more step before you leave. Take just a few moments. Our workers have a tape and a booklet that I want you to have. If you need water baptism, come over by the American flag. You need to pick up the material for the baptismal class. If you need that, we will baptize again tonight. It's part of our evening service. But those of you who need Christ and you've asked him now by the raised hand, testify of it by coming forward. And we'll meet you here as Pastor Mike leads us in a song.